I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman talk. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! Interviews with fans and people, people who Hey guys, welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Police Mops, the police blimp patrolled by your mom with a name that just... Rolls off the tongue. Mop. Mop. There we go. Uh, guys, it's the 50th episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening and supporting. I can't wait to do 50 more. Did that sound genuine to you? Did it sound like I was reading something, or did it sound like I was saying it from the bottom of my heart? I really do care that you guys listen to the show, uh, and it means a lot because... Otherwise, I'd be screaming into a void about Batman, and, and nobody would be hearing it. And Maybe that's better. All right, well, so to celebrate, I'm going to be chatting with one of the creators of Batman the Animated Series, an animation heroes of mine, Eric Radomski. Uh, we're going to talk about The Dark Knight's First Night, which was the pitch short that actually became the show, as well as Mask of the Phantasm, which he co-directed. All right, let's get to... Today's 50th episode spectacular, The Dark Knight's First Night, with today's guest, Eric Radomski. Eric's not only the co-creator and, in my opinion, one of the unsung heroes of Batman the Animated Series, but also the co-director of Mask of the Phantasm and a legend in animation. He's a producer, artist, director. He currently works over at Marvel on the new Spider-Man series, Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers Assemble, and was also responsible for HBO's super bloody dark Spawn animated series back in the 90s. It was great to chat with him. I truly can't wait to have him back on the show. Uh, we barely I feel like we barely scratched the surface of talking about the series with him but it's still a meaty interview uh we'll talk about more episodes that he did later but for now let's get to Eric Radomski I'm sitting down with Eric Radomski who is the co-creator of Batman the animated series uh as well as kind of an animation legend Ah. To me, uh, as well as a lot of people who listen to the show. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to be here and can't believe we're talking about a show that was, you know, quarter century ago. It's... I mean, it's like one of the most influential shows, at least for me. Mm. <laughs> uh, it kind of made me want to get into animation and, Very and cool. you know, voice acting and all that stuff. But we're sitting in your mix of like spooky slash Marvel office. <laughs> uh 
there's like a full size hunched over like skeleton behind you. Yep, <laughs> getting ready for Halloween. He's never gone down, so he's. Are you a Halloween man? Uh, yes, I, I've made it an edict for the studio this year that we're combining. You know, being inspired by. Uh, um, um, what am I? What am I thinking? What's the uh, Tim Burton movie? Nightmare Before Nightmare Christmas. Nightmare Before Christmas. Thank you. Uh, we're going to make it into a three-month celebration. So I want. We're we're just going to do Halloween. You know the whatever Thanksgiving holiday is right into Christmas because we tend to try and change decorations around here too often. So I said, just forget about it. We're doing from Halloween all the way through Christmas. You're going to really treat it like a Disneyland experience. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But favoring the Halloween. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm itching for Halloween the minute it's over. <laughs> Great. Uh, well, I wanted to talk to you, obviously, about Batman. Sure. But uh, before that, I guess, how did you get started in animation? What were your first jobs? Wow. Uh, well, for me, uh, one of those dream come trues, because when I was like nine, I guess, was when I really was interested in drawing and in cartoons and watching cartoons, obviously. But uh, being from Cleveland, Ohio, weren't a lot of opportunities for uh, animation in particular, but certainly watched it every weekend. And that influenced me to, to draw. And I was m moderately skilled, like anybody else, more curious than, than capable. But um, uh, just Pursued it from there, wondered how you can make a living being an artist. I actually wasn't big into comics. I was more into animation, cartoon stuff. What were your so, favorite cartoons growing up? Uh, Looney Tunes, hands down. Because mostly, probably, because it's all they played. Because back in them days, <laughs> we had limited networks to choose from. And this was usually a cable, what would be equal to like a cable access channel. They were, I think it was UHF is what it was considered. So we had two of them, Channel 43 and Channel 60 in Cleveland. And uh, Saturdays, they would run reruns of all the classic Looney Tunes. So I uh, used to admire, you know, Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling and Bob McKimps and, you know, Tex Avery and see all those names and wonder, wow, what a great job. This must be really cool. Time went on. Uh, high school, I took art for three, my three years in high school, 10th, 11th, 12th, and uh, just got better at it. I wasn't, still wasn't sure how I was going to make a living. And by the time I graduated high school, uh, I took one year of uh, what would be equal to kind of a um, uh, drafting school, you know, draftsman school, I guess. There were, I couldn't afford a four-year school. And they had one, one school in Cleveland, Cleveland Institute of Art, which I was never going to be able to afford. Um, uh, but there was another place called Cooper School, and it's not to be confused with the Cooper School in New York, but Cooper School in Cleveland. Uh, had one year, essentially two semesters of the basics. So learned a little bit of everything and, and then the school closed down, which was like, oh, that's great. So then I had no school and I had a little bit of skill and just still passion to get into animation. Uh, snooped around, asked a lot of questions. One thing led to another. Folks I met in Cleveland recommended I talk to some people out in LA. They, uh, in L.A., had a small studio. They gave me names of people back in Cleveland, and I picked up some ink and paint work. So I was like 20, maybe 20 years old. So I was uh, the first thing I painted on was Winnie the Pooh and, huh. and A Day for Eeyore, which was the first featurette that Disney had done outside of the studio. So Rick Reinert Pictures was the company which originated in Cleveland. They were doing the, it's like a 45-minute uh, special. And uh, I painted cells on it. I still have photographs 
really nerdy, but I took, I had photographs in my bedroom because I was painting the cells and it was just such a big, am I allowed to swear on that? Oh yeah, you can okay. swear uh, it was away. Just, it was just such a big fucking deal that I was actually working on Disney stuff. So I took pictures and I still have, you know, uh, painting Winnie the Pooh and uh, no film credit on it. I just got paid whatever nominal fee, but I was in heaven. I thought, you know. Never thought something like that would happen, but through that same group of folks, uh, stayed in touch with the folks in L.A. and made a trip out. Nothing was happening in L.A. for me. My portfolio was, you know, ramshackle, I guess, at best. <laughs> and uh, the, actually, the industry uh, was in the midst of a uh, strike in the early 80s. So I came out here, you know, country bumpkin, essentially, uh, wide-eyed and uh, portfolio in hand, and literally each of the studios I managed to get into to talk basically said, you know, we're on strike. This isn't a good industry to get into. And I was like, you know, dreams dashed on the rocks and went back to Cleveland uh, thinking, you know, I had to figure something different out because I didn't know what I was going to be doing. So worked for my brother for a couple of years. Uh, stayed in touch, kept doodling and drawing, and a small studio opened up in Cleveland, which was a guy that originally was out here in L.A. So he hired me. I, I through the connections, I went in as coffee boy and Xerox dude. You know, we, we used to use Xerox machine for ink and paint because uh, we would take the drawings and Xerox on cells. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was literally the first job I had. And they, uh, the guy's name was Ennis McNulty. Brilliant, talented guy, had worked out here for a few years, went back to Cleveland because he didn't like L.A. and uh, pursued his own dreams there, opened up a small uh, independent studio. So we were doing commercial work and he taught me pretty much all the basics of what I needed to know. And I couldn't have asked for better education because it was just myself. He was the creative lead. And then we had one other guy, John Gibble, who uh, unfortunately passed away too early, but he was the business guy. So I worked for those guys for like two and a half years and literally learned basics of stripping off the pegs on the cells and lining up the drawings and then painting and taking it to the camera and getting camera work done on it and uh, background painting. We did everything in the studio, which was terrific. So learned, you know, hands on, which was uh, incredible. And uh, it, it went great. And I had no reason to leave Cleveland as long as that studio was going to be there. But they fell on, you know, a little bit of rocky times. And uh, uh, so I, I worked less and less with them. Again, kicked around a little bit of freelance and then uh, pretty much thought that was going to be the end of the trail and uh, again continued to work with my brother on uh, you know this hard labor work we were laying in carpeting and cleaning carpeting so I did that for a few years in Cleveland which was uh, cold and wet and, and hard work and um, <clears throat> by chance out of the blue I got a call from Rick Reinert in LA they were picking up another project. They were going to have need of help, but they were only at three-person studio as well. And they literally said, if I can get out here in a couple of weeks, that I could work for them because they knew that I had been working, you know, and I had some some training finally. So here I was settling into my life in Cleveland, and lo and behold, they offer a job. And, you know, two weeks later, I was like, okay, do I leave? Or, you know, is this going to be just another couple of years and then I'm going to spin my wheels and come back. So um, 
uh, I think in my in my heart, I knew I was going to go, but it was it was touch and go for a while. I wasn't sure I wanted to come out. Well, know. it's hard to commit to a creative endeavor because there's less stability, sure, <laughs> especially no, when you're making such a huge move. Right, right. And and every place I had worked, it was more for the love of the work. I wasn't making oodles money, uh, but. Took the chance, drove across country in my soda can car, <laughs> and uh, uh, started working for Rick, and that lasted for like three and a half years. And I, again, on-the-job training. Rick was a great painter on his own. Uh, a guy named Dave Bennett was the director in the studio, and he, you know, knew layout and exposure sheets. And we did a majority of the work in-house. We had a studio in South America, actually. Uh, Jaime Diaz, who used to be a animator at Hanna Barbera in the day, but he had a studio down in South America, and uh, uh, we would subcontract the animation work there, bring it back. We do all the color here and then uh, post-production here. So I got a great education. You know, I was just so lucky I didn't have to attend a school. Most of the schools don't teach anything that in-depth. So I really learned from frame one, you know, all the way up to how to make, you know, make a production work. So I got both sides of it. I learned how to draw and paint and design while I was also learning how to manage the budget and the schedule. So yeah, you're I, getting I, paid for on the job, which absolutely, is great. Absolutely. It couldn't have been a better situation, but couldn't have planned it either. It just sort of happened. So after Rick, it was a hard decision. I, I wanted to do, uh, I wanted to focus on painting because that was the other passion I had. Uh -huh. I knew that fine art was not realistic, but I, I loved painting. And uh, once I, I sort of built up enough confidence after working with Rick, I wanted to step out on my own. So I was planning for freelance for like a year. So at the time, I was uh, just married and it was a little bit of a risk because we had just bought our first home and suddenly I want to leave my steady job and I want to freelance. So I did that and uh, started picking up work. I did some animation for uh, subcontracted animation out of Atlanta that was for Disney World, which was Delta Airlines, had a, a, a mascot. It was called the Delta Air Lion. <laughs> and I worked for the studio. And yeah, it's pretty, pretty lame. But um, <laughs> but again, they they kicked some animation to me, so I got to animate for them. That played apparently in one of their theaters down there, which I never saw, but that ran for a while as oh, that's part cool. of like Circle Vision or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, it was real. Sounds you know, like a, I, maybe an Epcot thing? or Yeah, something like that. It sounds That sounds right, but I, I hope I never have to look at it again because I'm sure it wasn't as good as uh, it should have been. But, but anyway, I picked up work here and there, and then uh, was coming around time to look for a new gig uh, about eight, nine months into my freelance and I, Warner Brothers was just opening up. The studio was literally maybe a month month old. They were opening. They didn't even have full crew yet. And they were starting Tiny Tunes. So I went over there through a recommendation to, to look for freelance work. So I took my book, met with one of the directors, um, showed him my, my work. And he offered, you know, he, he was like... You know, we're just starting studio, et cetera. And I was like, look, I'm a freelance. You know, I was all slightly cocky. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I, just I don't need to be freelance. tied down yeah. by this I don't know place. About that. And then he told me how much they were going to pay me per week, you know, because I'm so accustomed to not making money doing my job. And then when he told me what my salary would be, and he wasn't saying it as enticement. He just said, this is what we have to offer a week. And I'm like, what, what the hell are you talking about? And it was a nice chunk of money. So I was like... Okay, and I get to paint all day because I was applying for a painting job, and they said, "Yeah, you can be one of the painters." On you know, we had like four crews for Tiny Tunes, so I was like, "I'm in." You know, I'm going to paint every day, 
cool with me. So that went for two years, and and it was great. And then they opened up development. It they weren't sure Warner's studio was going to work. You know, Tiny Toons was a, it was really, uh, at its core, it was a real political choice because Spielberg was hot at the time, mm-hmm. and Spielberg was a big Looney Tunes fan. Warner's wanted to get back into the business, so Spielberg. They negotiated a deal where he could be the you know creative lead of whatever they do with Looney Tunes going forward. So Tiny Tunes was the creation they came up with. Spielberg had his name on it, and you know he was rightfully so in the first season. Especially ended up doing like sixty five episodes, I think, at least in the first twenty. He was very actually involved. You know, we got to meet him. He would come by the studio. Yeah, what was was it like working with Spielberg? Well, uh, again, I was at a distance because I was just a production artist, but to see him in the studio, he seemed like a very, you know, just another nerd, you know, another cartoon comic book uh, superhero nerd that uh, had his take on, on what the Looney Tunes would be evolved into this Tiny Toons uh, scenario. So that was kind of cool. You know, he was hot at the time, and you'd see him around the studio, and I was like, wow, freaking Steven Spielberg. That's pretty cool. So um, did that for a while, and then uh, Warners looked like they were going to stick around a bit, and uh, Tim Burton's Batman had come out. It was already being publicized. Uh, So the film had come out already, and then we were going into development on, like, six different titles and one was uh there was a a tasmanian devil you know they were they were looking to do something with the incidental looney tunes characters like uh, foghorn leghorn tasmanian devil um and and trying to build another series around them which birthed tasmania right eventually they i think they were doing something with the griswolds because that was popular in chevy chase vacation movie yeah, yeah exactly so that that got Kicked in the mix, but it it died a quick death. Uh, Gremlins was another one that was on the. I'd on watch the, a Gremlins cartoon. Yeah, yeah. In a second. It, again, it just got a little bit of development art, but it never gelled. And um, did you work on all of these, or were I, you? I, yeah, I, I at least pitched some artwork for each of the productions because I wanted to. You know, I just had the time, and it was like they they all seemed interesting. And one happened to be Batman, and Batman was, you know, I only knew it, uh, really knew it from the Tim Burton interpretation, because my experience with it prior was, you know, the the sixties, uh, you know, the the. Um, can't be kind of uh, yeah, Adam West for yeah, award. Yeah, can't be Adam West. Thank you. Those Colorful, are, big, those are, right? <laughs> yeah, and and even as I remember when it would air as a kid, it was all reruns. But still, even then, I. I didn't get. I, I got the campiness, but I didn't like the campiness. I was like, "This is kind of lame. Why would anybody watch this?" Because I didn't know much about the character prior. Right. So I just thought it was kind of, kind of stupid, you know, quite honestly. But one, once I saw Tim Burton's interpretation, that's the first time I really got a sense of, wow, you know, Batman's fucking awesome. Yeah, like, the architecture in the, those movies alone. Yeah, I think are just just the beautiful. dark, you know, solo character with no real superpowers. That I was completely intrigued and I'm thinking boy did I miss out when I was young <laughs> missed out on all the cool Batman shit so so anyway that was cool and I pitched some artwork for that but it was equal to all of the other things in my mind they were just different interpretations of what I thought a show might look like and there was no written text for any of them it was just if you're familiar with the Griswolds or the Gremlins or the Looney Tunes and Batman you know just we're looking for ideas and notions so I Threw all my artwork out there, um, 
expecting, you know, maybe I'd be able to work on another production. I was kind of getting tired of Tiny Toons. And um, Gene uh, also, you know, other people were, it wasn't just background painting development. Anybody could throw out whatever suggestions they had. And Bruce, Tim, um, was working on another crew. We were on different crews. And I barely knew him at the time. Uh, I knew of his artwork from uh, the crew that he was on, because he was storyboarding and doing some design. Mm -hmm. And um, he had pitched a sheet. It was literally one sheet of of Batman poses. Um, And... uh, when Gene finally, Gene McCurdy finally uh, took a you know account of all the stuff that was out there, they decided on Tasmania as being one of the shows and Batman being one of the shows. And then uh, Tiny Toons eventually evolved into Animaniacs, uh-huh. which was another interpretation. And then uh, after I had left after Batman, they went on to a couple other development. Freakazoid yeah. ended up coming up, etc. But Batman, <clears throat> Jean, for whatever her, her reasons were, and I'll, <laughs> I owe her you know, gratitude for my producing career, because that was the first show I, I'd ever uh, produced on. But um, she pulled Bruce and I together and basically said, we like what you guys are doing here. Um, we'd like to do a, a sample of animation. Uh, would you guys be interested? And we were both, I think, uh, kind of tuned out on Tiny Toons. So we were like, yeah, sure. So I met him for the first time, and, you know, he's a very shy, quiet guy. You yeah, know, what was uh, it like working together for the first time when you didn't even know the person? Yeah, yeah, it's it, it was an odd uh, matchup because I think, you know, he would come into the background department once in a while because he had a, 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 the background artist on his crew. He would come visit, and we got to know each other very casually, but everybody was fairly busy most of the time so we didn't hang out a lot and he's Bruce's very solo act you know he's he's very quiet and does his work and uh, um, not you know none of us were heavy duty socializing so when they put us together I, you know I think <laughs> Bruce looked at me like oh, okay fine you know because <laughs> seeing the artwork and it, it was pretty basic stuff that I had done can you describe what artwork <laughs> you submitted to initially sure. get the job um occurred to me just purely you know the influence of that movie uh, it was again um, uh, stating the obvious but it was just dark and, and grim and gritty and uh, growing up in Cleveland it's it's a condensed version of New York City so I was accustomed to the city and the architecture uh, you know turn of the century a lot of 1920s 30s buildings so um, that really resonated with me from from the film so for the animation because there was no rule or restriction on it being you know bright and colorful or or silly and fun it was just batman and the only thing that rung out in my head was the batman movie that was out it was warner brothers franchise they must want it to be something like that Mm -hmm. so the paintings um i i did were purely um, my interpretation of a grim, dark city, because I use Cleveland as my sort of source. I had done a painting, a couple paintings when I was back in Cleveland, long before I got into animation, um, of the city at nighttime. And yeah. it was just, you know, what I'd seen, where I was from. And uh, there were elements of it that had influence from uh, some some of the hot illustrators at the time, specifically Bernie Fuchs and uh, Bob Peake, and they were of an era where they were uh, experimenting a lot with uh, minimalist sort of painting approach because uh, 
illustration at the time was for like TV Guide covers and Time Magazine covers, and that was that's where those guys made their money. But they had to be topical, so they had to work really quick. So they would turn you know covers of Time Magazine around in a week sometimes. Wow. So the the styles and the techniques they came up with were really you know they just fresh and powerful, and I liked what they were doing. So that was all resonating in the back of my head. I didn't you know it wasn't like I masterminded this <laughs> grand idea, but it. it it connected because it was a quick style and it also used light source as as the main influence of of the finished illustration so to play around with the city at nighttime only thing that in my mind would be lit up were the things that were catching light so edges of buildings everything else fading into darkness and you know silhouettes of the city cityscape um all felt mysterious to me and it was uh old alfred hitchcock you know uh, a quote uh, i don't know that it's quote specific but something that he uh, he had mentioned in in some form that uh, you allow the audience's imagination to fill in the gap and that makes it more mysterious and more frightening sometimes so i thought batman being being the you know the solo uh, vigilante in this dark city, leave the city as mysterious as it could be. So I just went in and, and did like I think three, three, eight by ten pieces, and then I did a couple little, um, uh, literally three by five little studies with uh, colored pencil and a couple of well, I had just paint on black and I just I went over a black surface because it just made sense to me that it was a lot more efficient and it was the illustration kind of thing in my head that thought okay how can I how can I get there quicker without having to paint in all the black why don't we just start with black and paint in reverse and that's kind of what the samples were so they were just that's what defined the show <laughs> it's 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 odd uh, every time you know we hear about that and I like I said I wish that it was more of a, a real plan but uh, it it worked out that way and well it's once, cool that you trusted your gut and made that decision and like it feels like it was building off of years of you know yeah putting it all together yeah, even if oddly. it wasn't conscious like this is going to be a really cool choice it was like yeah this makes sense right right and and uh to your point um i think everything since then uh, that I've worked on has always come in that same way. It's when when I know I'm going to be working on a project and I have just the basic source, I always end up trying to stick with what inspired me when I first read it and what it might look like or how it might play. And more often than not, it's played out in my favor in terms of the way the shows turn out. But in, in the case of Batman, that concept was... I was surprised that anybody paid attention to it, let, you know, let alone just react to it. But to think that it would work in animation, you know, I didn't know. I was just like, this is kind of the way I think it would look. <laughs> and and then the, the real challenge was, uh, you know, OK, now you're going to do it. How the fuck do you do this? It's like, how do you make it into a production? Well, and, I heard initially, what, weren't the like the darks were like too dark or like the blacks were yeah, like well, too black for like TV standards? Yeah, certainly we had to experiment a little bit because there were... Uh, limiters on broadcast so um whenever you finish an entire episode it goes through a quality control check and a lot of times uh if it trips their meters at a certain broadcast uh level uh in this case for the visual the the broadcaster will uh reject it so they can't broadcast it because a lot of uh, i guess the transmission at the time it would 
squeeze the black is the is the reference uh -huh. so much so that it would eliminate a lot of the image so it would end up looking mostly like a muddy muddy screen so we had to compensate for that and it was a little bit trial and error that's all we could do but the bigger reaction was from both the network and from Warner Brothers because you know like like anything new people react in different ways and a lot of people just kept saying oh it's so dark it's so dark what they were worried do? about it oh yeah completely and in the you know amongst us meaning Bruce myself and a, a couple of the early artists everybody was like no this is gonna be fine it looks fucking cool <laughs> and yet you would get the influence from the network or some you know some other executive that just had to have an opinion about something, and they'd come in with their doom and gloom about how dark it is. And I was, I, it just early on, it got so repetitive that, yeah, under my breath, it was always like, oh, shut the fuck up. It's like, <laughs> just let us make the fucking show. Yeah, how because, did you balance that? Like, how much pushback was there? Or was there a lot of like, yeah, we'll do that, and then you didn't really a take lot. the next <laughs> I think that went across the board. And it wasn't just for the visuals, because we had a lot of, you know, it was, it was kind of a, resuscitation of action-adventure in uh -huh. animation, so uh, broadcast standards had been a big deal, you know, especially it had come up in the 80s and 90s with a lot of, uh, you know, groups across the country that were concerned about influence of television and kids watching, so suddenly we had an action-adventure show that was really exciting for kids, but, you know, they're, these are bad guys, and they're fighting good guys, and they're knocking the shit out of each other, so a lot of the notes we would get early on were about, you know, you can't throw people through windows and you can't, <laughs> you know, punch them in the face. And all of these rules were sort of being made as we went along and we would push them as much as we could. And then it, it actually inspired a lot of um, uh, creative storyboarding, storytelling, because we oftentimes would suggest more violence than you would actually see. But the impact was, again, the Hitchcock of it all. It was even more so. There was one in particular that stood out was uh, we wanted Robin in one episode to that punch. That Robin's Reckoning? Or? Uh, I'm not no. sure. We wanted Robin to punch a guy in the in the nuts, basically. Uh, yeah. So they, you know, I think, I'm trying to remember, it might have been Kevin Altieri's episode. I'm not sure who boarded it directly. But we basically set it up that way where it was it was obvious one character was on the ground and one was standing in front of him. And we flipped the camera and shot between the legs of the other one. And you just saw saw the guy, uh, the, the, the uh, saw Robin actually, a uh, nice roundhouse, roundhouse punch that went up and off screen. And then you just cut the reaction of the, you know the the bad guy, and you knew he got punched in the crotch. So so we didn't show anything, and we didn't get a note. Yeah, and, limitation and yet, breeds creativity. That's exactly right. So so we tried to incorporate that often, and you know one of the notes we got, uh, I think there was actually a T-shirt that ended up being made. One side was uh, a list of the top twenty like broadcast standard, ridiculous broadcast standard notes, and the front of it had an illustration that Bruce had done that incorporated all the things we couldn't do into one drawing. So it was Batman with his hand around Joker's throat going through the window and then there's shards of glass and there's you know syringes and crucifix and all of these things coming out of the window but the broadcast standard notes one of them in particular that stood out was uh, you know the ridiculousness of them was uh, you know you can't put, punch the character in the face but you might kick him in the chest <laughs> and we would just think uh, okay you know sure fine we can do that but eventually as time went on 
uh, you know, the good fortune of success is a lot of times people then turn their head because the show's doing well. So as the seasons progressed and we got deeper into, you know, the eventual 85 episodes, we, we didn't get a lot of pushback. We were aware and we were absolutely not... Um, we weren't stupid about it. We weren't, you know, sticking people in the eye with glass, but we would push and start throwing people through doors and, you know, glass breaking and machine guns. Yeah. And, and it eventually just became part of the show. And because, to our knowledge, nobody suffered any horrible, you know, horrible injuries uh, in the audience, uh, it ended up turning out fine. So it, uh, you know, it just kind of... Um, Time allowed us to, to prove our point, I guess. But um, uh, early on, again, back to the to the darkness of the show, uh, we were asked to do uh, a sample of animation before the series even started. So the, when Bruce and I worked together the first time, this was previous to writers. It was just the two of us. And basically, they wanted to see a sample. So we presented uh, what we thought would, it ended up being like a minute and a half, almost two minute piece. And I had to put together a schedule and a budget. And even at that time, I remember Tim Sarnoff, who was our, our VP of, uh, uh, of production. So he managed all the money and, and schedule. And uh, I had a friend up in Canada um, that I had worked with back in Cleveland when I was starting my animation career, Greg Duffel, who ran a studio um, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, it'll come to me later. But he, he was a great uh, animator on his own up in Canada and had a small studio and um, Lightbox. It was Lightbox Animation. And I called him up and asked if he could help us out with the two-minute piece and uh, told him what we had to spend. And he put his crew on it. And Bruce and I boarded the minute and a half. We pulled one of our production guys who ended up becoming the head of background design, which is Ted Blackman, brought him in. He did some of the initial uh, architecture uh, designs for for this one and a half minute piece. And then um, color, I painted all the backgrounds for the piece. Um, and then Greg Duffel and his group did layout and animation, brought it back. We edited here and that was editing on film, which was great. Oh, wow. So first... Gosh, first two-thirds of the 85, we actually cut on film, which was, again, an experience I'm so lucky I had. Because, That's wild. That's so cool. Yeah, as we got into the 80 or the back 20 episodes, uh, Warners was transitioning to digital edit, which, you know, a lot of the editors were reluctant. But I had all that opportunity to work on film, which was, it was terrific. I, I you know, I know that's not coming back either. So it was it was a great experience to, to, to work that way. But anyway, we got the footage back. Uh, we edited. We we did a simple soundtrack that we, I think we used music from the Tim Burton movie because nothing was original that we had uh, because this was going to be internal. It was never going to be for broadcast, so we didn't have any rights issues. And then sound effects, we had basic sound effects, and I think Bruce and I went in and did, uh, there was no dialogue at all. There are a lot of grunts than, getting yeah, grunts, efforts. <laughs> yeah, efforts and hits, and then I think maybe Commissioner Gordon uh came out and yelled something like halt. Yeah, you can find it online. Like I know it's on YouTube and on one of the DVDs is an extra. Right. They call it like the Dark Knight's First Night. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's right. And and that was the proof of concept for the darkness and why I could have a little bit more confidence in 
mutter under my breath at all the people that, that poo-pooed the darkness because we had done the piece and that's what got us the job to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it's going to look like this. So if you're okay with this. Yeah, it had guns. It had gonna... people beating yeah, people up. Absolutely. Uh, it looks very Fleischer superman -y. Yeah, uh, very heavily influenced by the Fleischer stuff. That That's uh, that's a given. And uh, again, it, it proved the concept. It could be done for production. It was going to be some rethinking, especially on the, on the background painting side because um, uh, traditional, everything was done obviously on whiteboard and it was traditional painting. Overseas studios were accustomed to that style. So going into the black realm was going to be, you know, a bit of a challenge. How are we going to do this? And how's everyone that's going to work on this show adapt to it? And it took time and studios were resistant and they all tried their workarounds. But eventually everybody kind of got on board and saw the efficiency of it because as much as it was, you know, sometimes you come up with cool ideas and then they're ridiculously expensive and they take a lot of time and right. it ends up turning out and everybody's like, well, it was worth it. For us, it actually ended up becoming a benefit to the limited production time and money that we had because the background production could move things along a lot quicker. So um, uh, it ended up working out fine. And then once the studios got on board uh, overseas and managed to get their crews trained in, in a way that made sense for the production schedule, uh, we just had the, you know, just uh, the, the effort to write good stories and, and try and storyboard them in a way that were compelling and interesting because the look sort of settled in really quickly. So, uh, um, you know, and, and uh, as it played out, I, I couldn't be happier with the fact that it turned out as well as it did and it was so well received. But to say again that it was all planned, <laughs> you know, that's not true. <laughs> oh, I'm really curious because uh, I feel like that Dark Knight's first night shorter, the proof of concept kind of became the prototype for the theme song yeah. or like the opening credits. Yeah. Um, what, what did you go into? How did you prepare and transition uh from that short to making it the credits, was that kind of something you guys knew you would do? Um, I don't. I don't know that we knew that was the the approach, but because uh, th the approach to the episodes in our minds were always mini mini films, so like mini movies, mini yeah. features. So ergo the title cards, you know, it was a, a sort of throwback to the forties pulp, you know, films and, and uh given a little bit of style. So <laughs> oh cool, cool. And and then with that, uh we had uh in the in that Day, I, I can't believe it's 25 years ago, but at that time it was fairly common, popular to have a main title. These days, especially for the stuff we're doing at Marvel now, uh, you know, you've got an opening credit, which is usually 10 seconds with the logo, and then you go into the show. But in those days, we would have a, it was a, I think it's a 30-second opening. So we actually were able to tell a, a mini story even in the in the title. So we talked about it, Bruce, and I was just like, you know, how can we do this similar to what we had done with the uh, test piece because uh, we wanted to keep it sans dialogue mm -hmm. and just let it be mood and attitude and sort of encapsulate what, uh, what Batman represented. And uh, Bruce had boarded out a, a good chunk of it. And then I came in and, and gave a few shots uh, that I thought could help and, and uh, enhance what we were doing. So we mixed and matched the boards, put them together, and just I did color on all the boards, sort of a color board pass. And we, uh, we shot an animatic of it uh, together and picked that as something that uh, you know we, we thought would work as the main title everybody thought it was fine you know 
trusting us based on what we'd done in the previous months to get it to that point. And uh, based on that, we put it into into production. And until it came back again and people saw the animation on it, because we used one of our stronger studios overseas to do the animation, then everybody really got what the show was. And it, yeah. it really represented what the show was. I mean, it's even more stylized mm -hmm. than the proof of concept. Yeah, we, we actually, we would have liked the show, I think, as we went along to, to look more like the main title than what it eventually ended up looking like as a series, um, you always get what you want. So, so that's uh, you know that was a little bit of a debate because it tends to be the case with animation that once you go too stylized, uh, especially when you're dealing with a network, they they can tend to get a little uncomfortable unless it's more logical. But yeah. if you do something too stylized, they start getting a little nervous about. Well, is the audience going to oh, understand? I love seeing all the production art for every like animated feature. Yeah, exactly. Seeing like what if it was like yeah, that? Of course, I'm right there with you. I agree completely. And that goes with the best of them from, you know, the current Disney stuff through Pixar. It's, you know, the, the I saw a lot of the inside and, out uh, art mm -hmm. when I, I visited Pixar and I was uh -huh. like, why? I yeah. mean, I like how the movie looks. Sure. But th this like very simple graphical kind of stuff yeah. was it was beautiful. I, I'm there with you. I, I And that's li like you said, you know, on all from all of the major studios that do feature work, especially the concept artists are, you know, they're just, you know, they're, they're the gods as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> because the concept stuff is always so impressive and and inspiring and then uh, more often than not you know as, as good as the films can be the films are kind of a homogenized version and you're like yeah yeah it's 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 a good film and it's cool but man I wish it looked like that yeah you know, so well uh, what was your what was your day-to-day -day kind of like I'm curious like what your job feels like it encompassed a lot while you were on the show mm -hmm. and you were kind of thrown into a much bigger position mm -hmm. than you expected right uh, what was that like what did you have to do how did that evolve over the course of like 85 episodes? Yeah, well, definitely in the beginning, after we presented, uh, Bruce and I presented that, um, uh, the two-minute piece, and that was the point where Jean McCurdy decided, you know, she was going to offer us this producing job, and literally... Both of us looked at each other and was like, what the fuck? It's like, <laughs> we don't know how to produce a show. And and we knew the order was there. So we were just like, <clears throat> of course. You know, we, we thought at best we were going to be maybe art directing on it or just consulting. But when she offered that, I think both of us were kind of scratching our head going, I don't know what a producer does. <laughs> it's like because it's sort of a you know undefinable title a lot of times. But yeah, for animation, make it all work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So we kind of learned on the job as far as that went. Like for myself, because I had had the ground up training, um, I was a little more confident going into it because you know it's like building anything. If you're building models or you work on your car or whatever, once you know how it works, it's not intimidating at all. It's just a matter of, do we have enough time and money to do what we need to do? So for me, I, I knew kind of what it needed to be. But at the same time, we had to hire a crew, which I'd never done. I'd always worked on smaller productions and I was very hands-on. You know, I if the boards needed to be done, I did the boards. If the painting needed to be done, I did the mm -hmm. painting. But for a, a series order of 65, you need an entire crew. So we ended up, you know, by at our peak, we probably had about 75 people working with us. And that was five crews. So you were in Burbank? Yeah. Um, over in Sherman Oaks was okay. uh, was where we, uh, the Sherman Oaks. Like where the where Galleria the was? Galleria is and was, yeah. Um, that was our, uh, we were in the tall white Imperial Bank building uh, in the beginning. And there was a, a 
There was a second floor office space where Bruce and I started. That lasted for about six months, maybe, in the beginning. Then they moved us into the um, into the big building. Um, <clears throat> but taking on that that uh, you know the assignment of hiring people, it was brand new to us, and we just uh, you know, we literally. I think looked at the mountain that was in front of us and just thought, well, just start walking because we didn't know how we were going to, if we had really uh, spent too much time thinking about the scale, you know, of what we were doing, the amount of work that needed to be done because productions, especially for animated television, it's all built on overlap. So you, you have simultaneous production on sometimes up to six episodes at a time. So some are in pre-production, some are in the middle of production, some are in post-production, and you've got to balance the, you know, the scripts going into board along with what needs to be fixed in the animation in the middle. And then on the end, trying to cut it together and get the fixes and retakes in order to complete the episode. So that, that all had to be accounted for as we went along. But hiring a crew was priority. And because we had a few people internal at Warner's at the time, which was from the Tiny Toons crews and all the folks that were in what was considered sort of a development phase, we were able to snatch a few people. Ted Blackman is one of them. He mm -hmm. came over as, uh, you know, slightly reluctantly in the beginning, but uh, we kind of got him his own space because Ted's kind of a solo act as well and let him do his own thing because he had the art, the art deco down. He's very strong graphic designer and um, the art deco just appealed to him. So once he started kicking out the, the first couple sketches for the two minute piece, the original test piece, we knew it's like, this is our guy, and if we can get Ted to work with us, it'd be great. And fortunately for us, he came on, and he was a great lead from the from the architect, uh, you know, architectural side. And then Kevin Altieri, I think, was maybe one of our first hires as a director, but he came from the outside. And uh, I, I think all of our directors eventually came from the outside. Uh, and we ended up with five crews, so five individual directors that had a crew of storyboard artists. We had kind of a pool of designers for background, pool of designers for character, pool of designers for props, and then color department had, uh, you know, a four background artists, and then we had a couple ink and paint people that were doing specifically Batman. So once that crew started to come together and we started getting scripts, um, you know, it was looking like we were off to the races, although the startup on the scripts was a, a bit of a challenge for the Yeah, first I heard months. the initial scripts weren't <laughs> up to the standards that you guys kind of wanted, so you brought in, maybe that was when Alan Burnett came in? Exactly. And and what had happened, um, I'm not sure as I recall specifically how the two writers that came on um, uh, were hired. It was Laren Bright was was one person's name, and the other was Sean um, Catherine Derrick. Sean Catherine Derrick. Yeah. yeah. So so they were the sort of a writing team, but their take on what we were doing leaned more into what I was saying earlier on, where it was more of a a lighthearted, little more friendly. Batman animated show. So it was definitely more catering to a younger audience, which Bruce and I were, you know, Bruce certainly more than I, because he had a long love of Batman from the comics. But my influence from, from the Tim Burton film, we were so down the pike of dark and moody and, <laughs> you know, and, and adult almost that their best efforts, no matter what they were, we would read them and we were just like, no, this isn't really the show. And it wasn't particularly criticism of their capability to write. It was just, I don't think they got 
the take that we were going for. So we really had a lot of resistance early on. Bruce had uh, a very good friend of his, Mitch Bryan, who ended up writing On Leather Wings, which was the very first episode. We were able to uh, um, convince Gene to allow us to freelance. So Bruce worked uh, with Mitch to get him on board to at least help us on writing kind of a Bible and and writing the first script. And he worked independent from Sean and, and Laren, although we it was required that we kept them involved. And eventually, uh, the Mitch Bryan script came in and we, re we really liked it. Uh, on Leather Wings was really solid and in line with what we wanted to do. And it just came you know, uh, uh, you know, the truth just sort of rang true, and and we had to go to Gene and say we we really can't work with this current setup. Gene uh, and Alan Burnett go back long before Warner Brothers as both friends, and they worked together. And Alan had been writing uh, for several years before coming over to Warner Brothers. She introduced Alan to us. Alan was a Batman fan. Uh, I think he was just available. She, uh, I'm sure behind the scenes, I never asked her directly. She may have said, these guys need some, you know, some help on the writing side and also need a steady hand because, you know, we were both young. It's our first time and we were both getting a little, I think, a little cocky. Yeah. It's like, don't tell us how to make our show. And the reality was it's the first show we'd ever made. So it was like, it was like slow down, boys. So I think Gene wanted to make sure that it wasn't going to spool out of control, you know, and have uh, people at each other's throats. So uh, so the combination of the, the, the Bible that was being put together uh, with that first script and Alan coming on board and then reading. And he fortunately was enough of a Batman fan that he understood what we were going for and he embraced what we already had. And when he joined, that really kind of solidified our, he was a bit of a barrier for us, which was a good thing. I mean, barrier to protect us because he knew what we wanted to do was, uh, you know, was appropriate, but we didn't have the experience dealing with a network. We didn't have the experience dealing with corporate, you know, and there were corporate influences because there's a merchandising push and, you know, and then there's Warner Brothers executives and there was another movie in the making already. So we were not prepared to deal with, you know, a bunch of influence that was going to be coming at us. So Alan ended up becoming sort of that buffer where he could talk with Gene about, you know, leave these guys alone for this. When we run into these problems with the network, this is the way we'll handle it. And eventually groomed us into understanding how to, to be a little bit more diplomatic in the way we handled things. And I ended up segueing into dealing with the network quite often by the time mid-season came in terms of getting notes from the network and uh, fielding a lot of the concerns they had about you know broadcast standards issues. And uh, sometimes uh, we would get uh, a little bit more anxious network executive than we wanted. Uh -huh. So they would suddenly start throwing out story ideas and design ideas. And that's kind of Do you of remember taboo. any, <clears throat> I guess, bad story or design <clears throat> ideas that were suggested? Very early on, this uh, this should give you an idea. And this was probably one of the the worst ideas, but <laughs> we had similar that were, were less so. But at one point, and I don't remember where it came from or who had suggested it, but they were even talking about giving Batman a dog so he would have a dog in the Batcave. <laughs> and it was like, 
no, what the hell are you talking about? But they thought it would be a macho kind of cool thing, but it would still soften them. And it, we were like, no fucking way. We're not giving them a dog. And, and yet it was it was in play for a little while. It was just it was potentially going to be one of those you give give a little bit to get a lot. And fortunately, we didn't want to give that one. So, so we ended up not having to. So that was a good one. But but other wonky stuff like that, you know, there were always these weird sort of requests and as the shows came back and started to air, not until we hit probably the midpoint where we we could actually have something to back up our, our a little bit of our cockiness, our attitude, where we could easily dismiss a lot of stuff that came at us early on. And the scripts had gotten better at that point. The relationship had gotten better. So we were getting a lot less influence. But early on, yeah, there were a lot of people poking their nose into it. And, you know, most often it was bad ideas. So so fortunately, we were able to, to dance around a lot of that. But Alan, again, because of his influence coming in, um, he had good taste. He appreciated what we were doing. He, he really uh, helped to give us the space, meaning Bruce and I and the crew, to really just leave them alone, let them make the show. He would keep an eye on the writing so we wouldn't go too far, you know, to, to the point of you don't want murder on screen and we would have loved to do that, but but he was always kind of catching it at that point. And then eventually Paul Dini came on and, you know, he brought another angle to the writing that Alan really liked and uh, I guess uh, it's it's not meant to be critical, but it, uh, I would say lacked because Paul was able to bring a lot of personality and he had a big comedic background. So he could bring just enough personality into a lot of the characters, especially villains that Alan certainly appreciated, but I don't think was uh, as quick, you know, quick on the draw as Paul was to come up with cool ways of presenting the Joker or, you know, Mr. Freeze and even, you know, Mr. Freeze being as, as seemingly one dimensional to, to really give him. Yeah. From know, the Bible to the episode feels mm-hmm. like such a big jump because, uh, you know, now the Bible is available for right. people to look at. And it's it's a pretty short <clears throat> description of Mr. Freeze, who became like one of the iconic villains of the animated series. Yeah, absolutely. That, that particular episode, Bruce directed Heart of Ice, which was the our our origin story was uh, i think it was dini's you know complete uh inspiration and it ended up being this incredibly tragic love story and it's it just beautiful and you really for the first time got uh, this character that just seemed one-dimensional and cold to understand how he got that way, which was the the brilliant sort of hook to it. It's like, how did this person become the you know the the, the this icy individual that's distant and, and solo? Uh, where did that come from? And that was the heart of the story, which was brilliant. And the way they pulled it off, I thought it was one of the strongest episodes we'd done. So, yeah, pretty pretty uh, pretty cool the way that. Uh, no pun intended, but pretty cool the way they played out. <laughs> well, I'd love to dig into Mask of the Phantasm. Yep. I, I would be it'd be crazy if I didn't ask you about it. Sure, <laughs> uh, there's so much I want to ask, but we'll we'll go with that because you co-directed that film, yep. uh, and it came out in theaters. It was it, it sounded like it was something that originally started as it wasn't going to be a a theatrical release, and then it kind of last minute got thrown into that. Hey, we got a little bit. We want to put it out in theaters. Can you make it look even nicer? Right. Uh, what was the process? I, I know it started. It didn't start as Phantasm. Originally, the movie was going to be something like the Trial episode. And then, yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure actually how that storyline. I don't recall how it transitioned to the Phantasm, but once it did, um, you know, 
it was always intended to be a what, what used to be direct to video. So that was a big market. It was a way to you know really cash in because we had a uh, obviously Batman was known already not only from the feature but from the animated series, and this was an opportunity for them to put a new title out and uh, basically just you know it's a cash cow. But um, there was a, a, <laughs> a brilliant idea someone had, which which I mean that very sarcastically. <laughs> uh, we had boarded the entire episode or film um, and took it overseas. And I literally was overseas handing the show out. Uh, and I was about to return from Korea with literally a day and a half to spare. And for whatever reason, I still don't understand what conversation was had here without me, but from the corporate level at Warner, not only animation, but on the on the uh, corporate Warner side, it was decided they wanted to put it in the theater. And obviously, we both just about shit, because it was like, what are you talking about? I mean, we didn't have the time to do this for a, for a theatrical release. Not only the quality, but we would have boarded it differently. We would have thought about the story differently to know that we had a big screen and uh, you know the an audience that was going to be captive in that way. It, it would have been a different approach. So we all we could do was Jimmy Rig what we had done, and that was a matter of building out the format on all the shots as best we could without you mean from like a four by three to to whatever the wide screen, or whatever yeah, wide, yeah. yeah. whatever version I, I don't remember it 16 by nine sounds right um, and that was uh, again uh, hot on our feet we, we just came up with a template that we used a physical template that we went over the boards with the overseas studio and explained to them how we would do a close-up framing versus an establishing shot and had to trust their judgment a lot of times as to how they were going to fill in, you know, the area that we didn't account for. So a lot of times if a character's swinging off screen, left, right, or top or bottom, in this case, left and right, we didn't have enough space. We didn't have enough time for the character to go off. So we'd have to accommodate the, uh, you know, the movement or the staging of the shot in order to not have to rethink and retell the story, but to, to use the format as it existed. And that was all we could do. That We literally had no time to do it, do much more than that. We did gain a little bit more production time overseas, so it allowed them to do a little bit more quality control and take a little more time with the cleanup work on the, the drawings because suddenly they were going to be projected on a giant screen. Um, and, you know, that was it. We, we, we didn't have much opportunity to change more than that. Fortunately, we were able to goose the budget on the music side. So Shirley Walker brought this incredible score that, yeah. you know, just uh, uh, one of the greatest memories I have was the first, maybe second day of scoring, she invited us to the stage. So we got to be on stage with the 80-piece orchestra and they were playing the main title of, of the movie, you know, and we, Bruce and I had never been to any event like that. And it wasn't a formal thing. She just said, come on over, you got to hear him play. And she let us stand up on the pulpit, you know, looking down at the orchestra. And some of the orchestra, she was like, you know, on the side, she said, more than half these people are from the LA Philharmonic. And, you know, they're all they're session musicians, you know, they make a living in addition to doing their these, these incredible performances. They come in and they work on films. So they've worked on all the top films, you know, and suddenly they're working on our animated movie. And it was like, holy shit. <laughs> and then certainly once they start playing, it was just it's goosebumps. You know, you're just like, holy shit, this is amazing. So fortunately, whistles and bells, smoke and mirrors, you know, we were able to pull together 
something that played well. You know, it wasn't embarrassing, which was all we were hoping for. Did you know that it was, I mean, it's impactful and people love it. And mm. I still, it's my favorite Batman film still. Uh, and there have been some other good ones. But uh, did you know what you were making at the time? Or was it kind of like a scramble a dash to the finish. Again, I, I think it was, uh, we didn't have time to think about it. We did what we knew because we had 65 episodes under our belt. So we knew what it needed to be. And um, we, you know, we stuck to our guns, uh, followed our gut. Really, uh, again, Alan was very influential in the script um, in terms of really telling this epic sort of story within uh, the world of, of our Batman. And because it had a love story component, I mean, it was all things that we would have loved to do for the episodic, but it wasn't necessarily appropriate because we were definitely a six to 11 year old boys. Whereas you're going into a theater, it's more of a family film. Mm -hmm. So we could go a little broader and a little more, um, you know, just, just uh, cinematic with, with, uh, we always considered the series cinematic, but now we actually were cinematic, so we could take time with emotions and relationships and, and real storytelling. So we knew that we were finally getting to do something that we would have liked to with the episodic, but to know that it would have turned out as well as it did and to be as solid a story as it was, we liked it. We knew we liked it a lot, even as it was being written, but I didn't think it would turn out as good as it did. <laughs> and it really, you know, it was really quite good. And it, that had more to do with the fact that we were running to get this thing done. So to really sit down and, you know, I, I laugh at friends slightly sarcastically, but also proudly because I'm almost primarily television guy. But when I hear that films take five years to make, you know, at Disney and Pixar and DreamWorks, and I just think I would go crazy making a film for five years. We made that film in nine months, you know, and it, and not to say that it matches the standard of a Pixar film in terms of the, you know, the, the aesthetic quality, but in terms of the scope and the storytelling, I'd put it up there with any of my favorite films, animated films that I like in terms of a, a film. So I, you know, I, I think because we stuck with our gut and we ran, we didn't look back, we didn't have time to, to labor over it. I think that could have been a negative. We could have, you know, overthought things if, if we had more time to really put storyboards on the wall and think about, well, maybe the love story should go this way or that way. And that often happens with the, the films we see from the bigger studios. And a lot of times you think, wow, it was a great film, but what the hell happened to that? And you realize they overworked the story and too many opinions came in and the story falls apart. In our case, we went with that script and we ran and we got it done and we polished it on the tail and picked up only we, what we needed to in terms of fixes. And uh, it, it just proved that the original concept and idea that we we loved and we went with, uh, you know, it it, it uh, fulfilled our, our hope of what it could be. And from the fans point of view, they seem to love it. And oh, yeah. I saw it recently in a in a uh, uh, it was a. Uh, um, Okay. Um, <clears throat> we'll write about it up. that. Yeah. No, it's okay. okay. Um, I just saw it. Uh, there, w there was a screening of it about six months ago at the Lemley Theater out here, and uh, I was invited. I was like, I don't know if I want to go. And, you know, so I ended up going full theater. Besides myself and a couple other folks that I went with were people that actually worked on the film. The entire audience were, were fans that had grown up with it, and they loved the film. And I literally, I was, it was a great feeling to see that so many people were still into it at the same time you know being a 
producer, director, designer, all of those things. I'm watching the movie and I can only see the mistakes. So I tried to enjoy it as much as I could and I kept thinking, Is there one Shit. mistake that you were like, ah? No, of course. There's a, there's a few where the, the quality of the drawings, because it was big screen, just we didn't have time to go back and fix things. And, and they're the ones that jump out at me. And I'm like, Shit. Those, those are the things where I say, if I had a couple more months to just fix the things that needed to be fixed, I would be very satisfied with the film. But again, the audience didn't, didn't know the difference or they didn't care. Right. They don't they know what they're to, missing. Yeah, exactly. The... <laughs> exactly. So it's it's the curse of being in animation as long as I am and a lot of you know folks that I work with. You know, it becomes it's what you do. So you only can you only get distracted by the things that you know are wrong. So no matter what, I've worked on all of my episodic television, all the different shows that I've done. When I look back, I can enjoy, appreciate appreciate the compliments of anybody that likes the shows. But I always look back at them. And I'm like, I can't look at these shows anymore because <laughs> they they just make me frustrated. Because uh, uh, you know, you do the best you can, and uh, uh, you, you, you know, you got to enjoy that because um, that's all you're going to get <laughs> until you make your own movie and put your own money into it and take your own time with it. That's uh, that's the best you can hope for. Well. This has been amazing. I think we're out of time. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, I'm getting dragged out to another. But I would love to, you know, maybe another time talk about your other episodes, like Absolutely. Mudslide and Almost Got Him, or like a couple that you directed sure. other than the film and every other thing. But well, I'd love to. Just, you're, uh, you know, a hero of uh, oh, that's the very show. Kind. And I know everybody. I know there are a lot of people who love your work, so it's well, been I appreciate great to talk it. with you about it. I'm grateful that I get to do this for a living. So I, I thank the fans. I'll always be grateful the the fact that they support us and, uh, uh, you know, Truly watching and and commenting, especially these days, social media, it helps tremendously because we're always swimming upstream against the you know corporate sort of influence and and uh, requirements. But if the fans are there, they support the shows, then the shows get made, and that's really the way it works. So, thank you to cool. everybody. So, thank you. Great. Thanks, man. All right. All right, that's the show. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the show on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. Subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And please help keep the show going by donating at patreon.com slash BTAS Podcast. Got some cool new rewards and cooler ones coming soon. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, co-produced by me, Justin Michael, with Feral Audio. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of the podcast. Andrew Seeley is my show producer, and Brendan Lynch-Salomon was the engineer for this episode, with Matt Brousseau editing today's episode. And I'd like to take a moment to thank Eric Radomski for doing the show again. It was amazing. Happy 50th, and here's to the next 50. I'll be in your ears and you'll be in my hearts. And I couldn't think of a creepier way of ending this show. <laughs> <laughs>